Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 109. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Welcome, welcome to the MCAT podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. I also host several other podcasts over the MedEd Media Network, which you can find at mededmedia.com. You can subscribe. If you don't subscribe to these podcasts, it's free, and you can do it on an iOS device using Apple Podcasts. If you just open up your iPhone, search for podcasts, and you'll find the app. It's pre-installed. Unless you deleted it, just reinstall it. Again, that's the podcast app on iOS devices. Or if you are on an Android device, Google Podcasts now exists. You can get it from the Play Store, or if you just search for the pre-med years in your Chrome browser, you should be able to find the Google Podcasts app and the pre-med years, the MCAT podcast, all of them right there. So with that, we have some exciting news here at the MCAT podcast. Some changes here are coming your way right now. Clara, hello. You're not Brian. No, I'm not. What happened to Brian? Brian is no longer with Next Step. He moved on to bigger and better things. But I have been the MCAT course content director for Next Step for a couple of years, and I've worked with the company for quite a while. So I am here to take his place and provide all of that great MCAT insight. You are our new resident MCAT expert. Indeed. Right, and we we know, obviously, people move and change jobs and whatever, and Brian wasn't in this for the rest of his life, and he had some some other things come up, and he's moving on, and that's awesome for him. Uh, We still email back and forth, so we're still friends, but now we have a different voice, which I think is exciting for the listener to kind of get a different take, a different voice, and as you said, you've been kind of the head of MCAT content for the MCAT course for several years. How long have you been with Next Step now? Uh, About four years now. Okay. And why are you in the MCAT test prep world? That's a great question. Um, So I was a pre-med, like I know uh, many of you listeners are, and I took the MCAT when I was a junior in undergrad. I went to USC in California, uh, not USC in South Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) But so I took the MCAT as a junior and was planning on applying and sort of just got sucked into the world of tutoring because back then Next Step was a big tutoring company. Um, And then I just stuck with it and I found that I really loved teaching and never really saw a need for my own career path to apply to med school. So after being a tutor, I went on to develop a lot of content for Next Step and I'm still loving it here. 
So plugging along. And now you're going to be a famous podcaster. Yep. <laughs> Exciting. Why, why did you want to be a physician in the first place? So I actually was a little bit misguided. Uh, I I knew I loved the idea of being a physician. I was a lifeguard for a long time when I was in high school. And so I was, you know, always really interested in, oh, you know, like the, the whole aspect of saving lives and that whole idea. Um, I was definitely around some medical emergencies as a young person that made me interested in being a doctor, but I didn't quite realize that some aspects of it weren't entirely for me. Like I actually am a little bit afraid of blood <laughs> uh, confession. Uh, so I found that the teaching side made a lot more sense, but I am always really excited to interact with so many future doctors that we see with the company. Awesome. Well, I think you will be a great addition to the MCAT podcast. I'm glad to have you here. I hope our students are as well. And with that, we're going to continue our dive into full length 10 and jump into the Cars passage. And so for you following along, Cars is going to be a little bit harder to follow. In the podcast, we're going to do our best to to make it as easy as possible. But remember, you can go and download the handouts at our show notes page, which for this episode is session 109. So mcatpodcast.com slash 109 for those. Um, So Claire, do you want to go ahead and and read passage one for us? I would love to. Um, Just a recap for everyone. I know Brian talked a little bit about Carr's strategies. So we talked about things like note-taking and highlighting. So as we read along, I will mention occasionally things that will be helpful for you to highlight. If you're a note-taker, of course, feel free to take notes on that thing instead. Uh, Your strategy is up to you. But let's get started. So passage one. The score of a composition is made up of musical signs that convey performance instructions. In order to be able to follow these instructions, performers have to know the conventions through which these musical signs can be translated into sound. So right there, actually right off the bat, I like to highlight uh, words like have to or must or need to because they're showing the sort of imperative from the author. So I would highlight have to know. Uh, Moving on. However, sound aspects such as attack, articulation, sound quality, and subtle differences in intensity and duration between notes are not clearly indicated by a score. These aspects are extremely important. They are part of the music, they confer to it a specific character, and furthermore, they are crucial in distinguishing a great performance from a simply good one. Since these aspects are not to be found in the score, They can be realized by a performer in a multitude of different ways without contradicting the written text. So after that first paragraph, you'll note um, what they're talking about. Essentially, they're talking about the written score of a musical composition and then elements that are not denoted in that score that are sort of inferred or implied. Moving on. Many authors seem to suggest that some of the performance instructions not specified by the score can be inferred by an analysis of it. As Eugene Narmore suggests in his 1988 essay, the score, which can be conceived as a kind of syntactical roadmap based on a highly efficient but therefore limited symbol system, can be scrutinized in detail. Relations between its elements can be pointed out, and the analytical findings can be translated into performance instructions. Now, right here in this paragraph, we get something interesting. We get another name. So up until now, we've only had the author speaking. Now we have this new person speaking, Eugene Narmore. So that might be something good to highlight. 
This technique is an example of what John Rink calls one-to-one -one mapping. Rink criticizes this kind of approach as being analogous to translating a book into another language word by word without regard to the second language's particular idioms, inflections, grammar, and syntax. Another person here, John Rink, he's got an opinion. Wrapping up, relying on my experience as a pianist, I sympathize with Rink's criticisms of one-to-one -one mapping and with his ideas generally. Nevertheless, I would suggest that his way of proceeding can be counterproductive when applied to piano music of the second half of the 20th century. Following Rink's understanding, performers' informed intuitions are based on their backgrounds, their study experiences, the examples they have heard, the repertoire they have learned, and so on. Whether one likes it or not, pianist training is mainly based on 18th, 19th, and early 20th century music. Their informed intuition is consequently molded by a language with a more or less clearly perceivable syntax and tonal harmony. It can be imagined that to broach a recent composition replying, um, relying on intuition and informed by contact with fundamentally different musical styles would not be dissimilar from driving a modern Formula One car relying on our experience of an old runabout. It would be possible, but the potentiality of the new object would be only partially explored. So there's a wow. lot going on there. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot. And and following along, trying to listen to this, I'm like, well, okay, this is going to be hard. So again, it might be challenging listening in the car or working out. But again, go get the handouts and you can follow along there. So um, so you, you you highlighted a couple things. You pointed out a couple of different things to to look out for. And then we jump into the questions. And so passage one is questions one through seven. We have four questions highlighted here for you guys today that actually worked for the podcast. So question one, based on the passage, the author would agree that all of the following are important aspects of a performance except A, the score, B, rhythm, C, one-to-one -one mapping, or D, articulation and so for me the the one thing that stood out the the second voice that came in john rink or the third voice so including the authors john rink said one-to-one -one mapping criticized uh the approach of one-to-one -one mapping and then the author said that he sympathizes with that um thought as well that he doesn't like one or she doesn't like one-to-one -one mapping so i would probably go with c one-to-one -one mapping for that yeah, and you'd, you'd be absolutely correct there. So, <laughs> good job. Um, but yeah, so what you were thinking was exactly right here. So we see a few terms that are listed. We see score, rhythm, articulation, and all of those kind of seem similar. We might look back in the actual passage and see where they're mentioned. But one-to-one -one mapping probably stands out right away because that's discussed a little bit separately, right? That's discussed with this guy, John Rink. And exactly like you said, Rink is criticizing one-to-one -one mapping. And then the author later says he sympathizes with Rink's criticisms. Mm -hmm. So since this question is asking about the author and not, you know, someone else, we know right away the author is sort of critical of this concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I'm one for one in cars. Awesome. <laughs> which which for you guys listening, for you, Claire, verbal reasoning was the worst section for me on, on the MCAT, as it is for a lot of people. Or cars <laughs> now. Oh, yeah. That's pretty common. All right. Why don't you go ahead and read number two? 
according to the author, which of the following is least likely to be an appropriate way to discover the unwritten conventions of a piece of contemporary music? A, listening to several recordings of contemporary music before trying to play it. And B, recording yourself playing the piece different ways and critiquing your performances. C, inventing new notation to explore different interpretations of a piece. And D, studying pieces which contain clearly perceivable syntax and tonal harmony. Uh, I'm, I'm looking through, I'm kind of cheating. I'm looking back through the passages, uh, the passage as you're reading the question. I'm trying to find out where he was talking about um, the conventions of a piece of contemporary music, discovering the unwritten conventions. Um, and I, I can't really figure out, I'm assuming it was the this last paragraph after he talked about uh, kind of sympathizing with the one-to-one mapping, he goes on to, or she goes on to explain uh, some other ways to kind of look through uh, music. Would I be right in, in the right spot there? You absolutely are. Okay. All right. So break down how we would find out this answer. Totally. Um, so... Taking a look at this question, this is a little bit more complex than the previous one. Uh, we see a lot of stuff going on here, but we know that this fourth paragraph is the place we want to go because uh, this question is asking what's least likely to be an appropriate way to discover these unwritten conventions. So we're looking for something that the author would not want us to do. Uh, we want us to do less than the other three options. And this fourth paragraph is a great place where the author is talking about sort of complaints the author has. So um, essentially uh, problems with ranks approach or problems with this one-to-one mapping concept. So what we'd want to do is we want to actually go directly back to this fourth paragraph. And if you need to skim it again or you need to read it again, that's totally fine. Um, it's pretty much inevitable that you're going to have to go back to the passage occasionally. And what we actually see here is this sentence about midway through that paragraph that says, um, whether one likes it or not, pianist training, mainly based on these 18th, century, um, 18th 19th, and early 20th century pieces of music, uh, it says their informed intuition is consequently molded by a language with a more or less clearly perceivable syntax and tonal harmony. So as we're reading through, that might actually stand out as basically exactly the same wording as choice D. And this is actually pretty common on the MCAT. Uh, often, if you see a certain answer choice that's maybe structured a little bit weirdly, and you're saying, oh, th that word stands out, it might actually be taken directly from the passage. And interestingly, if we take a look at this, we say, okay, the author is saying that these pianists who trained based on this older music had their intuition molded by this language with perceivable syntax and tonal harmony. But then the author is complaining about that, right? The author goes on to use this analogy of trying to drive like a race car um, with the experience of like this really old, you know, runabout or this old like falling apart car. <laughs> so the author is saying that this is not the, the right approach. We might not know exactly what the author thinks the right approach is, but this is not it. Uh, and another key word actually in the question stem which we read earlier, is contemporary. So contemporary means modern. And so the author is saying, okay, we're trying to learn about modern music, but then this answer choice D actually comes from a part of the passage where we're talking about, oh, we actually base our conventions on older music. So that actually makes sense here in terms of what we would not want to do. 
So this uh, one, just standing out to me, this one would would probably suck up a lot of my time because I would go to A, answer choice A, and go listening to several recordings of contemporary music before trying to play it. And then I'd be looking through the whole passage, like where did he talk about listening to music? And then I'd go to B, recording yourself playing the piece different ways. And I'd go and try to find that. What, what would you recommend for a student who's trying to go answer by answer and looking through the passage for each of those answers to see if it fits? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's a very natural way to try to do this question. Uh, in general, it's actually a good approach to look answer by answer. Obviously, you're not magically going to be drawn to choice D. Um, but there's two different things you can do that, that both work for a question like this. Um, so one is to go answer choice by answer choice and just not sink a lot of time into any given choice. So for example, A, listening to several recordings of contemporary music, you might remember from the passage, they never discussed listening to recordings. Um, so it's just not in there at all. Uh, but this doesn't seem outright wrong, right? It's like contemporary music. So that is what the question's asking about. Uh, it doesn't seem like a bad thing offhand to be listening to recordings. So we can just move on. So don't cross off A and don't pick it. And then recording yourself playing the piece different ways. Well, Again, that doesn't sound familiar from the passage, but it doesn't seem wrong, so we can continue. Um, and then C, inventing new notation to explore different interpretations. Uh, that one's a little bit weird, but this whole idea of um, interpreting these unwritten conventions of music was related to notation. And then we end up with at choice D. Um, the alternative, what we can do is actually, as soon as we see a question like this, we see, okay, there's four totally different answer choices. We're going to have to dig around the passage to try to find any of them. Just go back to the most relevant part of the passage, which is this fourth paragraph, and just start looking there right away without sinking a lot of time into analyzing these answer choices at all. Mm. And that will draw us to choice D. Okay. All right. Good. I think that's the hardest part and why cars just take so long is because the passages are long and people are just scanning through it all over and over and over again. So it's a good, a good breakdown there. All right, question three. Which of the following would be most similar to Eugene Narmore's conception of a musical score as used in the second paragraph? So they're telling us right away, go to the second paragraph, which is awesome, <laughs> which is one of the smaller paragraphs. Uh, a, a road atlas, B, the alphabet, C, a poem, or D, a computer program. So most similar to Eugene's conception of a musical score. And so we go back to passage, um, the second paragraph, and it says, uh, he suggests in his 1988 essay, the score which can be conceived of as a kind of syntactical roadmap based on a highly efficient but therefore limited symbol system can be scrutinized in detail, relations, relationship, relations between its elements can be pointed out, and the analytical findings can be translated into performance instructions. So it's it's interesting. The be most similar to Eugene's conception of a musical score. The the thing that that I think a lot of students would be drawn to immediately is a, because you have a road atlas, and in the passage or in the paragraph, it says a syntactical road map, and so they go, "Oh, road, road." That must be similar. <laughs> but when you actually read it out, about um, you have this road map that's being uh, scrutinized, and elements being pointed out, and the findings can be translated into performance instructions. 
that screams to me a computer program, but that's what that's what I would pick. And you're right. Woohoo! <laughs> awesome. This actually is a tough one, and we do get a lot of students picking Road Atlas because it does look familiar, right? And they're talking about mapping, and an atlas is like a map. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. So basically, though, a, a way to approach a question like this is first not to take it too literally, like road, road, um, but then also to just really go back directly to that second paragraph and just boil down what um, this Eugene Narmore character is saying, right? So what exactly is he saying about the score? And in essence, he's saying, okay, syntactical roadmap based on highly efficient limited symbol system. So it's an efficient symbol system and it can be translated into performance instructions uh, so that's not really a road atlas, right? A road atlas is like a map, like a picture mm-hmm. uh, of a certain area. Uh, and then the alphabet might look tempting because it definitely is like a symbol system, right? But it doesn't have analytical findings that can be translated into performance instructions. Like maybe you can translate the alphabet into words and then the words can serve as instructions, but that's not analogous to what we're dealing with with the score. And then finally, a poem isn't a limited symbol system at all. A poem can be very complex. So yeah. then D stands out. All right. I like it. All right. Question awesome. seven. Go ahead. All right. Suppose a student approached John Rink for advice on performance choices not clearly indicated by the score. What advice would Rink most likely give? A, you should examine relationships between elements to understand performance instructions. B, you should ignore the score and just play what sounds good to your ear. C, you should base performance decisions on your intuition. And D, you should not play modern pieces if you do not have a background in the genre. (laughs) Just give up. (laughs) Um, All right. So a student approached Rink for advice on performance choices not clearly indicated by the score. So what advice would Rink most likely give? And so we go back to Rink, which is the third paragraph, and he was all about criticizing the one-to-one mapping, translating a book into another language word by word without regard to the second language's particular idioms, inflections, grammar, and syntax. So we kind of know that he likes um, he likes the culture, right? I'll say culture um, of what's going on in that second language. So... Looking through these answers, examine relationships between elements to understand performance instructions. Eh, maybe. Um, it's not necessarily elements of what. He's, he's specifically talking about something else. Let me see. Uh, B, you should ignore the score and just play what sounds good to your ear. I don't think he said that at all. Um, C, you should base performance decisions on your intuition. Um, intuition, he's talking... In, in his direct translation here of idioms, inflections, grammar, and sy- syntax, that has nothing to do with the person's perso- personal intuition. Um, you should not play modern pieces if you do not have a background in your genre, um, which he doesn't say that either. Although it may it may, may come about. if He's saying if you don't have a background and you don't know that second language's particular idioms, inflections, grammar, and syntax, then maybe he would say that. Um but I, I think A probably, I, I'm not really sure on this one, but A sounds the best out of all of them. This is a tough one. It's very tough. 
Tell yeah. me I'm wrong. It's okay. All right, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this one is tricky, right? Because nothing quite stands out as being right right away because we went back to that third paragraph. Uh, we read that whole description of what Rink is saying and nothing fits. And one of the strategies I always tell my own students to use when dealing with questions like this is if you go back to the place where you think the passage is referring to and none of the answer choices fit in with that part of the passage, it's very possible that you can actually find the answer somewhere else in the passage, right? Because the MCAT's not that, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty direct test. It's not a test you're going to have to be digging around a ton, like trying to find hidden meanings in this paragraph you're looking at. And there's a really easy way to figure out if anywhere else in the par- in the passage might be relevant here. And that's just to look for John Rink's name. Because this question is asking about John Rink in his opinion. So if you actually looked to, or if you remembered... Um, the fourth paragraph, the last uh, one. I see it right away. So I see following Rink's understanding, performers' informed intuitions are based on their backgrounds, the study experience, blah, 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 blah. So intuition would go with C. You, sh- you should base performance decisions based on your, or performance decisions on your intuition. That's so exactly right. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So just quickly scan. Would you recommend, when you have an author here writing about other people, would you recommend highlighting each time these other people's names come up so you can quickly jump from paragraph to paragraph and and go to their names? Definitely. Um, Yeah, I recommend highlighting names in almost all cases. So in a case like this where there's three people, right? There's the author, there's this briefly, this Eugene, and then there's John Rink. Uh, absolutely, it can be helpful to highlight names, so then you can look back to it quickly. Uh, pretty much the only case in which I don't recommend highlighting names is if there's just like a ton of them, right? Like sometimes there will be these passages where they list like four different people, four different scientists or something like that. And then you typically won't have to highlight because you'll have highlighting all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, but here it would definitely help us because then we see, oh, it's not just the author in that fourth paragraph. It's actually still John Rink a little bit, and that's how we get this answer. All right, there you have it. Again, Clara with Next Step Test Prep. No longer Brian. We will miss Brian, but we are excited to have Clara on the podcast guiding us, guiding you to a better score, a higher score, a score that will get you in to the school of your dreams. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week here for some more MCAT Cars Prep. See you later.